Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is keyboardist, composer, and producer Jeff Lorber. First of all, streams in vinyl are way, way up in the first half of 2021. I'm going to give you some figures, and I think they're going to blow your mind. Streams are up in the United States 11% to $555 billion. Yes, that's billion with a B, and that's in the United States alone. Now, vinyl is up way, way more, 108% to be exact, to about $19 million in the first half. That sounds like a lot. It is compared to what it was, but that being said, it's sort of a drop in the bucket compared to what streaming is bringing in. Just to show you where things are going, even CD sales, which have been down in the dumps for quite a while now, they're even up 2% to about $19 million. So think about this now. Vinyl sales and CD sales are exactly the same. Now, if we flip the scale, though, album downloads are down by 27% and track sales are down by 21%. It's still $102 million, so there's a lot of people that are still downloading tracks, but it's dropping like a rock. If we look at the top songs, it's really telling us something. The very, very top one for the first six months of the year is by Olivia Rodrigo, it's Driver's License, and she got 582 million streams. In fact, all of the top 10 are in the 300 million plus range. So, once again, that illustrates the fact that you really need a lot of streams in order to break into the big time. When people started complaining that they had 100,000 streams and only made $10, well, yeah, it's a drop in the bucket as compared to what some of the top artists are really bringing in. So again, just think about this. The top song is at 582 million over six months. On the other hand, the top album is Morgan Wallen's Dangerous, and that only brought in 2.1 million consumption units. What's consumption unit? Well, basically they take 1,500 streams from the album, and that's considered one sale or one consumption unit. So if you look at it, 2.1 million over six months isn't that much. Gee, a big album used to do 2.1 million in one day sometimes. The top vinyl album was Taylor Swift's Evermore at 142,000. Once again, this sounds like a lot in the grand scheme of things. It really isn't. So what are we finding out here? Streams are really big. People can complain about streaming, but there's a lot of money being made. If it's not trickling down, it's mostly because of the middlemen. It's not because of the streaming networks. They're paying out 70 to 80% of what they're bringing in to the copyright holder. So there's a lot of hands out in the middle. And as usual, that's who's making most of the money. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my Music Mixing Primer and 101 Mixing Tricks programs that will help take your mixes to the next level. Go to bobbyosinskicourses.com to learn more. Now here's something that I find particularly exciting, just thinking about what it will do for soundproofing. There's a new soundproofing tool, and actually all it is is a spring-loaded screw. Doesn't sound like much, but this is actually a big deal. It comes from Malmo University in Sweden. And what it does is it forms a gap of a few millimeters between the stud and the drywall's underside. 
And then, because it's spring-loaded, it will breathe with the sound waves. Sound waves are dampened. So, as a result, it reduces the sound through a wall by 9 dB, which is huge. What this means in the future is just about any place can be a lot quieter, and all you have to do is replace the screws in your drywall. This is what the Royal Swedish Academy of Engineering Sciences did to test this and they came back verifying these results. The bad part is, this is so new, it's only available right now in Sweden, but the good part is there's interest from all over the world in making this a standard product when it comes to soundproofing. So this is really exciting, it's a really small thing, but the sound screw, which is what they're gonna call it, I think is going to make a huge difference in not only what happens in recording studios, but also in everyday life as well. My guest this week is Grammy Award-nominated keyboardist, composer, and record producer Jeff Lorber. Jeff has released more than 25 albums during his career, and he's considered one of the pioneers of the modern jazz genre. Many of his songs are featured on the Weather Channel's Local on the H segments, and he's contributed tracks for the critically acclaimed PlayStation game Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Jeff has done extensive production and session work for other artists, including David Cause, Eric Benet, and Herb Alpert. And he's excelled working as a remixer. He also owns the state-of-the-art JHL Sound Studios. During the interview, we spoke about the brilliant strategy he used to gain visibility for one of his early albums, the event that got him into engineering, his little-known career in remixing, which includes even a track for you too, and much more. I spoke with Jeff via Zoom from a studio in Pacific Palisades, California. Let's talk about when you first got started and got into the music business back in Philly. Okay. You know, I grew up in a, in a family where there, there was a lot of music around. I had two older sisters that were taking piano lessons and my mom played a lot. She was a, you know, she was an accomplished piano player. She played a lot of, you know, sort of uh, romantic kind of music like Debussy uh, and things, things of that nature, you know, basically classical standards. And, um, yeah, I just always liked music and I wanted to get in on the fun. And I had some cousins too that were into music too. You know, um, when I was growing up, folk music was really big and I definitely did not like that as much as my cousins did. But I had one cousin that was a jazz drummer and I used to love to go over to his house and he, he'd let me play the drums and he had a big collection of Blue Note albums. And uh, at the time, um, John Coltrane was living in Philly and playing quite often in the, in the city. And uh, my cousin used to go here and play. He would always leave the, the family gatherings to go hear John Coltrane playing downtown somewhere. So, um, you know, I, I wasn't able to really take part in that, but, uh, you know, I heard about it and my, my cousin turned me on to some cool music. And um, I guess when I was about 14 was when um, I started going out to clubs a little bit, 14 or 15, there was a place called the Electric Factory. Yeah, did you ever go there? I did, yes. And uh, I saw I saw Pink Floyd when they first came to the U.S. for the first time there, and I saw The Who. And there was a lot of stuff going on in Philly. And then I moved to Boston to go to to go to Berkeley, and there was really a lot of stuff there. I got to see a lot. Of, well, especially the jazz workshop was the main thing. Yeah. Well, me too. I'm a Berkeley boy too. Oh, all right. We're probably there about the same time. I think. 
I was there 70 to 73. Oh, okay. You're before me. I was there 77, 78. Okay. But yeah, it was, I think I got as much from going to hear bands play at the jazz workshop as I did um, from going to school, just about, because I heard some incredible music. I got to hear um, Horace Silver and Thelonious Monk. I saw Miles like at least three times in Boston. One, One time at the, um, Boston Tea Party, which was a rock club. Oh, yeah. And when he was touring with Keith Jarrett and Chick Corea in the same band, and Dave Holland and I think Jack DeJanet were, were in the band, maybe Erto, possibly. And then when I saw him at the Jags workshop, I think it was a little smaller group with Michael Henderson and maybe s- some of those same guys, but not with uh, Keith Jarrett and, and Chick. I don't, I don't know if they had, I don't know if they had a keyboard player at that point. They, I think, um, Maybe Gary Bartz was playing the soprano sax at that point. Lived in Boston for three years. I was cab driver, red cab in Brookline. And um, what else happened? Oh, I, um, I, you know, one of my classmates was John Schofield. And so I became friends with him. And he sort of uh, turned me on to some stuff that he was listening, uh, in particular, Pat Martino, which I hadn't heard of before. And uh, we sort of played together in a band for a little while. Like another guy that I played with was um, was Greg Hawks, who was an alto player who later became the keyboard player. He took that like one semester mandatory keyboard class that that horn players had to take and used that to good effect to um, join the cars. So he did okay with that. I went to Berkeley as a student for a couple of years and I became a teacher, mostly in the audio wow. department. Completely the audio department, actually. His brother's younger brother was one of my students okay small world i guess he didn't get the mandatory keyboard class to <laughs> i guess not oh yeah oh another thing another thing that happened at berkeley yeah I, I i heard one of your 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 um your shows where you mentioned being in boston um so i wasn't a good enough uh, you know the thing that everybody lo- really looks looks forward to at berkeley is being in the ensembles and unfortunately, um, my reading wasn't quite good enough to make it into the ensembles. So they put me in remedial reading class. And uh, my friend Bobby Columbia is constantly bringing that up, like kind of basically telling me that I'm retarded or something, <laughs> that I was in remedial reading. But I really was a good student at the, in the remedial reading class. And, um, and my reading is, uh, is much better now. <laughs> <laughs> you went to Portland then, right? Yeah, I, I, yeah, I moved to Portland. You know, I just kind of actually, I sort of, um, I thought maybe the music thing wasn't going to work, but it turned out that Portland was a great city to be in because there was really a lot of places to play and there were a lot of good musicians there. And I actually started my group not because I had any dreams of uh, huge success or anything like that. It was mainly because I was playing with other people who I just thought the, the band leaders that I was working for were terrible. So I decided to just do it because nobody else was doing it very well. And, um, and I started out um, just doing kind of top 40 commercial stuff, but then I decided to do more of a jazz thing. And um, yeah, and, and, we, and um, we, um, you know, we made a little demo tape. I sent it to a couple places. And one was this little label called Inner City Records that was a guy named Irv Kratka who had a business putting out these things called music minus one records that was pretty successful for him. And then he added, he found a couple European labels that he imported and then he started to sign his own acts. And I was one of his first acts. And um, 
the first record did well just based on local like the local pacific northwest scene because we were we, we were doing well there and there was actually like a one stop in seattle that decided to make my record sort of a little project and he actually managed to really help sell that inner city record to all the stations in you know all over the northwest because we played in corvallis and eugene and seattle and missoula montana and you know, uh, Arcata, California once, I think, you know, so we were, we, it was just a local Northwest thing. And then, and we sold enough records so that our second album, we had a little better budget. And um, I wasn't too crazy about my sax player at the time in terms of the way he was soloing. So I decided to get, use some of that money to hire Joe Farrell to play sax on the record. And, um, and when I informed my sax player that that's what I was doing, he got kind of mad and said, why don't you get Chick Corea to play your parts? And I thought, yeah, that, that's a good idea. I should get try to get Chick on the record too. So I got Chick and Joe Farrell to play on this album. And then because of that, it got a lot of national attention. And I got a couple um, offers from major labels to sign. We went with Ariston. I ended up making six records over there with Five Davis at Ariston. That's awesome. So it's worth hiring the best. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's where you got your engineering chops too, right? Well, what happened was I wasn't really planning on having engineering chops, but I, there was a little, uh, you know, my friend Rick that sort of introduced us. So Rick was working for me at the time as my engineer, and he accidentally erased one of my demos that I was working on. So at that point, I decided maybe I better learn how to do this. And um, so, so yeah, so I had a little 24-track um board that we used live but i also used at home to record in an eight track tape machine and um and i was really shocked when i started like after we got our record deal and i started coming going down to la and working in real studios about how you know what i learned from just working at home was it was like completely the same stuff as as using you know um the machine, the, you know, an SSL or an E board, it's just the same, you know, you, you put stuff in record and there's, there, I mean, obviously there's a little bit more to it, but you know, there's EQ and there's compression and it's like, uh, I felt really at home pretty quickly when I started to use r real, real equipment down in LA. And I was lucky because, um, like the first time I really made a record down there was at, at um, Hollywood sound with a guy named Rick McConan who had worked with the Crusaders, you know, that's why I hired him because I was a big fan of the Crusaders albums. And also um, Earth, Wind & Fire was wor working on their stuff at the same time. And I think, I think this happens to a lot of people that when you get, when you first get to a real studio that gets a good sound, you sort of, it kind of gets imprinted on your mind that that's the way things should be because I love the sound of the kind of relatively small drum rooms uh, that that studio had that had this real tight sort of R&B sound. And that's what I have in my studio, basically, you know, similar dimensions and a similar, similar kind of sound. And um, I think that gives you a real punchy sound that, that really helps in terms of recording and getting a good drum sound. I worked with Rick once. I was doing a surround mix. Don't remember what it was, but the artist asked that Rick come in and supervise so we got a chance to work together and it was fun. Yeah. I mean, he definitely like, I, I don't know if you listen to those Crusader records, they sound incredible. So, and um, I think I, 
for some reason, I, I might be wrong about this, but I think it was a quad eight board there at, at Hollywood sound. And, uh, those records sound good. So I think I, you know, transistor technology, you know, you can't go wrong. There's uh, something about Rick, really great engineers just have a touch. Exactly. They can make very minute. I noticed this with Al Schmidt as well. They can make very minute changes that actually sound really big. And Rick was like that. I mean, very minute changes. And it was like, oh, that's really good. Well, also engineers from that era that grew up, I mean, there was only one way to record. And that was through analog boards onto tape. It wasn't like, uh, like nowadays you have people that specialize in various things. They're, they're, there's, there's plenty of engineers out there right now that probably never, have never recorded a drum set in their life. And so, um, so it's just a different thing back then where, you know, m- most of the engineers learned, you know, they started out as, as uh, assistants and they learned from somebody that knew what they were doing. And yes, yeah, it was just a different, a different way of recording. I mean, it's, it's, it's funny that it's, it seems so ancient and in the past, but um, it wasn't really that long quite that long ago in, in some ways. So how did your studio come about? Well, the, the thing that really, uh, you know, made me want to get a, a, like a full studio here at the house was uh, instead of just like a funky demo studio was for some reason I had like a check come in for something and I decided I was going to get a Publison and I went to Westlake and the, the Publison was there. But then the, right next to the, the Publison was a um, JH24. It was going for, I think, $13,000 or $15,000, something like that. And I did some quick math in my head, and I realized that I couldn't afford not to buy that. Because at the time, I was spending about $20,000 on studio time to make an album for each record I was making. And I figured that if I own my own 24-track and a board, that um, that I could basically you know, put that money in my pocket and do a lot more things with it too. And I got a 2,600 Soundcraft. Does that sound right? 2,400. 2,400. Yeah. I had one yeah. myself. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. They were great. I mean, you know, I wouldn't recommend the EQ, a whole lot of the EQs necessarily, but they sounded really good. And, um, in fact, at one point I had, um, I had two JH24s because I, you know, from, uh, let's see, from, um, I guess about 89 to 90, Three, some, somewhere in there, not 88 to 90, 93 or four. I was doing, I ended up doing a lot of remixes. Um, I ended up getting in with this engineer named, named Keith Cohen, who was managed by this guy named Sandy Robertson that maybe you've heard of, who, who manages a lot of famous producers and engineers. And we, and at that time, um, it was just like the perfect time for re- remixes. Like all, we were working mainly for this, from, for this guy named Lula Silas at MCA and we were remixing all of the stuff that he was working on, which was new edition, ready for the world, fine young cannibals. And then we ended up doing, and then Jimmy Iovine was working on U2 and he hired us to work on a, on a U2 album. So all of a sudden we started, this didn't last very long. We started doing some rock stuff, remixes for rock stuff. Cause our, our remix for the song desire, I guess, helped them, sell a lot of units on what then was called CHR radio or something like this, some kind of dance top 40 format that all of a sudden they got a lot, a lot more airplay from, from this remix that we did. And so, um, 
So then we ended up getting hired to do a few of those. But most of the rock acts that we worked for weren't too crazy about remixes. U2 was, though. And, and amazingly enough, like in, in my whole experience of um, doing remixes, and we, I must have done 100 probably in those years. You know, I never met any of the artists, but U2, for, some, for whatever reason, was in town. And they came down when we were remixing the stuff. And um, Bono got so excited about what we were doing that he actually went into the studio and recorded. Because I think the song originally was only three minutes long, or maybe not even that, the song Desire. And he decided to come up with a couple more verses. And uh, we were hanging out in the studio. And uh, I don't think the drummer and the, and the bass player, they weren't too crazy about it because I replaced the bass and I sampled the drums and quantized them. And, uh, but uh, the other two guys were really excited about it, uh, The Edge and, um, and Bono. So, um, so it was fun. It was fun to work with them on, on that remix. Yeah, rock guys wouldn't appreciate that. I mean, I was in the same category at the time. It's like, I, I don't understand the premise behind this. It's already finished. Why would you want to do it again? <laughs> but on the other hand, so many artists had a lot of success as a result and more visibility. So it was definitely worth it. Yeah, I think, you know, usually what we would do is we would get the tape and we would listen to it. And um, if it sounded really good, we would just go straight into... Doing, doing the remix, which was basically a dance version for the dance club. That's basically what we were there to do. But sometimes we would hear what they had, and then we decided, well, this, this could be better. So we would actually do a version, like a new sort of seven-inch version with, new, with some new ad additional production. Because basically, we would whatever they had, we would have like another 24-track full of new, new, new production, uh, you know, like a new kick drum, new drums, new keyboard parts. We would keep some of the key parts from the original record, um, whatever they were. Uh, sometimes just the vocal and that's it, sometimes more. But um, yeah, so at Larrabee, we had you know, 48 tracks to deal with. It was hooked up so that we could, we could use that. And, um, and that was a great studio to work in. And in fact, my, my studio here is almost a recreation exactly of Larrabee Studio B. I don't know if you can see this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a... What, what is it called? 50, 40, 40, 56. This is a 40, 56 that I bought from George Martin. that used to be at Air Oxford Street. And, um, wow, very cool. And I got speakers from George Ox Oxberger and it's got the exact same, you know, power amps crossover. I got the same chair that they had at Larrabee. I used to have the same floor, but I didn't like the floor. I ended up changing that out because it was too bumpy. And, uh, you know, so, so it's, it's sort of a, an exact recreation and, um, I really like it. I've been here for a while now. So you've done a lot of production as well as being an artist. Did that just happen naturally? Well, yeah. I mean, mostly it's for, for jazzy stuff or, you know, I mean, I have done some more, more vocal pop stuff along the way, but, um, like, I mean, I learned, I definitely learned from the school of hard knocks where I, um, I wasn't lucky enough to have producers on my early albums although I, I i i had some co-producers like when i was in portland there was a guy named marlon McLean that was in a band called pleasure that was signed to fantasy and he sort of helped me out with uh, one of the records that i recorded there but i guess when, when i really learned more about production in particular was when i, I went through doing those remixes for all those years because that was really incredible in terms of you know you could really study the production that you would get and one of one of our early clients that we worked with a lot was Jam 
Jam and Lewis. And so uh, I think it was Alexander O'Neill and Sherelle and forget what else, but uh, you know, there was like a whole, there was actually a whole Alexander O'Neill remix album that came out from the stuff that we did came. I think it was pretty big hit in, in the UK. Not sure if it did anything here, but yeah, like I said, we were working for Lul and we worked on all their MCA stuff. And then he would get gigs um, from uh, other labels. He would change his name and call himself LSJ, which is her, his initials or his initials backwards or something. But anyway, yeah, the Jam and Lewis stuff was incredible because when they, you know, this was earlier in, in their career and everything was 24 tracks. So they would not, they wouldn't print a Rhodes in stereo because it was, the space was too valuable. I guess they, they would just put it through a chorus or something, you know, when they mixed if they wanted it to be in stereo, but it was just, their, their stuff was just recorded beautifully. And the amount of low end that would come off tape just by pushing up the fader on the bass tracks was just insane. I think, I guess there's something magical about that Harrison board that they used up there that was really fantastic. But yeah, but I learned, and then also being a session musician, I did a lot of sessions for a while. I was pretty popular when it came to MIDI arranging. And um, so I worked with a lot of people. So, you know, every, everybody's totally different. Everybody works totally. I mean, they work different, but I mean, they're, everybody's going after making good music. And um, so there are similarities. And uh, so, yeah, so I guess after learning all that, it just became second nature to to want to get into production and to want to be involved in that as an arranger and as a keyboard player. And I play a little guitar. And yep. so but um, you're coming with the full package though, because you, you can exactly. do all of that. It's most producers are pretty wide ranging in what they can do, but I think you're taking it a little farther than most of them. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's funny cause I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of, you know, there's just so much out there about recording and about the studio and how to get a great sound and i'm interested in all, in all that but a lot of times um the way to get a great sound has nothing to do with using a good preamp or eq it has to do with just making sure the you know it's got the right bass line and the right drum part and you, you i think you can do more with arranging than you can with um with uh gear sometimes well if you have something that's well arranged it mixes itself exactly exactly right and speaking of which Space Time. So let's talk about your new album because I listened to it last night. It's great. Oh, oh thanks. It, it smokes. It, it, it's just the playing is so good, but the sounds are good too. Congratulations on that. That well, was thanks. really good. Yeah, yeah. I was lucky. I was lucky. I, I work with. Um, I mean, I do mix some of my own stuff, but you know, I, I work with uh, Peter Mokran, who's a great engineer, and we've been working together for a while. And so it's definitely a luxury for me to let him take that uh responsibility away from me and he's more of a specialist but yeah he did some great mixes yeah you, you know to me like i start out and I, I pretty much write stuff on my own I, and i um i have a really large collection of pro tool sessions that are all organized in terms of beat, beats per minute and so when i start writing a song i try to find just some live drums that i can use just to, just to work with as demo drums and that makes a huge difference right there because like I just love the, I just love the sound of live drums and you can edit them and make sure that the fills go in the right place and all that if you if you want to spend the time to do that. And, you know, so, so another thing that I do occasionally is like sometimes the kick drum pattern isn't right. So I'll just mute the kick drum and I'll and, and I'll uh, 
I'll come up with a new kick drum pattern. So that's, that's something else I do, but yeah, so that, that's sort of one of my secrets that I use to help me really get, make great demos, I think. And then I have a really great relationship with um, Gary Novak, who's a terrific studio drummer here in town and he doesn't live that far away. So, um, and he's got a drum set up here and I got um, some nice C12As I use for overheads and, um, and some, you know, a bunch of API preamps and that's mostly what I record the drums through. And uh, yeah, so that's, that's sort of the, that's where everything starts. And that's, that's a really good kind of basis for, um, for building everything on just between what I can do with the keyboards and the synth bass part and the live drums. And, you know, already stuff sounded pretty, pretty solid and, and pretty great, you know, with a great drummer like that. One of the things that jumped out to me was how good the snare drum sounded. That's the that's just those overheads the C twelve C twelve A is did I say that C twelve A yeah yeah right not C twelves but C, C yeah they're not they're not quite that expensive still hard to find they're hard to find they're still hard to find yeah C twelve A yeah yeah I've I've and I've had trouble because they do need repair on occasion but I actually have five of them oh look at you I have uh, two for my piano and two for the over, the overheads and i got one for a spare that's that's important yeah, yeah yeah although ever since i got the spare they haven't been breaking as much for some reason and usually they just need like that new vista thing replaced that's yeah. pretty much it whatever that is is that a, is that considered a real tube or what what is it's so small it's a hybrid i think of some sort but whatever the case you seem to favor the roads above everything else was that always like your instrument or am i wrong on this well I play the piano a lot. I mean, the thing that's so cool about the Rhodes is that from a rhythmic standpoint, compared to a piano, when you come off of it, it, mute, it you know, it mutes it. So it's a little more of a rhythmic instrument. And, um, but, you know, I, I don't really, um, and I have a couple of them here and I, I have a really nice one that uh, in particular that I do most, most of the recording with that I got from Herb Alpert a long time ago. And it's one of the more modern roads. It's very bright. Oh, and it's uh, Eddie Reynolds. It's a guy, a guy that's kind of well-known for modding roads. Roads back in, I guess, the 80s. And uh, yeah, but, I, but I, I feel like both of them are really important. Like those, that, those are my two like, main axes. And the Mini Moog, you know, comes in third place. Not for bass, though. I use the Mini Moog for bass all the time. Mm-hmm. And I play guitar, too. But I'm not, I mean, I'm not great, but I, I can put down some basic stuff so i have a really a lot of fun playing guitar actually really i'm really into it getting back to the album i guess you recorded it all apart then right because you did it during the pandemic right well you know yeah that that, that's usually the way we're we're doing things here once in a while we'll get a rhythm section in here like like the record that i made before this one was with mike stern and he was pretty adamant about recording his stuff with with the band we had um Dave Weckl in here, which you can imagine, he's pretty particular about his drum sounds. So that was a lot of pressure um, trying to play and engineer at the same time. Yeah, on that one, that, that was that was a tough one. And uh, Jimmy Haslip, but yeah, um, I just find um, kind of um, you know doing doing like doing my thing where I use the live drums as as demo drums and then bringing Gary in. And, um, and then building from there, that, that works pretty well. And I have, I have some other sort of go-to guys that I really like to use. Like Dave Mann is a fantastic 
born a rancher in New York, and he's uh, he's really just um, an excellent producer and engineer too. So his stuff comes in sounding fantastic, and um, you know I I, pref- I prefer to you know be in the studio with with people if I can though, and and Gary you know there was no problem with Gary coming over so that was good. Was it a hassle to get parts coming from people? Did you supervise them over Zoom or something when they were doing their parts, or did they just do it and send them? Well, I worked with I, I, Mike, uh, Mike Landau, who actually lives right in the neighborhood. I mean, he's only like a few blocks away, who, who I don't normally, I mean, I have worked with him over the years quite a bit, but um, he's, he's, he's definitely featured on this record. But he was sort of new in terms of, well, I shouldn't say completely new, because I think I have had him send me parts before, but his parts sounded really good. There was there was a little bit of interaction where I had him, you know, kind of change and fix up a, a few things, but that that was pretty easy. Just you know, Jimmy Haslett came over and played over here, and uh, yeah, another guy who was a, a big contributor to the record was Bob Mincer, the sax player. And so um, the last time I worked with him, he came over, but this time he recorded himself at his place, and that ended up sounding just fine too. So. I guess I got lucky because it does. It doesn't always work when you're counting on people to both produce and engineer th- themselves as well as be be a player. Um, not everybody can do that. I know that I certainly can't. I, I can't produce an engineer at the same time. I can for overdubs, but not for basics. So I was always hire somebody really good. Yeah, <laughs> I wish I had done that when I was working with with Mike Stern <laughs> a year ago, whenever that was. Yeah, that's that seems like a must because that's a lot to deal with. Yeah, especially if you have players that are picky about the sound. Too many things to think about. You know, since then, I had basically like at that point, I I pretty much just had the, you know, the headphone system that that comes with the SSL. But since then, I've gotten something new, which is called My Mix by whoever makes it. Oh yes, I've seen it. But now I'm now I'm ready for a much better headphone experience where everybody can kind of dial in their own mix. And, um, and I haven't had a chance to use it yet, unfortunately, but uh, I'm, re- I'm ready for the next band recording. Sometimes it doesn't work though, because there are people that to save their lives, they can't dial in a mix, you know, you sort of have to do it for them. Right. Yeah. Do you want to speak about PKD? I can. Um, yeah. So I'm, um, I have something called polycystic kidney disease and it's in my family. And unfortunately my mom, had it and um and you know just a lot of people in my family have it and it's one of these things where at, usually at a certain age your your kidneys stop functioning and uh they don't really have anything to uh address it yet except for they have kidney transplants which i was very lucky to get one from my wife and so that was terrific and so um i think i'm going on 16 years on uh, kidney transplant as oh. of next november but uh yeah so i've been trying to um do what I can to let people know about that. And uh, there's a there's a uh, an organization called the Polycystic Kidney Foundation in Kansas. And um, Chuck Loeb and I made an album that's called Bop with a bunch of other people with Rand- Randy Brecker and uh, Rick Braun and uh, Everett Harp and a bunch of other great musicians. And the money that comes in from that from the streaming, you know, we we send it to them. So that's a nice thing. Yeah. So that's basically it. I just try to support them as much as I can. Last question, Jeff. What's the best piece of business advice that maybe you learned along the way or maybe someone imparted to you? I knew you were going to ask me that because I've been listening to your uh, your podcast. You know, I was listening to your, your podcast a, a, a few weeks ago where you were interviewing 
Miles Copeland, he was talking about when the police played this little gig for four people, that it turned out to be a real key thing that really helped boost their career. So I guess my, my, my experience is very similar to that in a way where um, I was living in, in Portland and I was teaching this little jazz improv class. And um, one of the students said, hey, we, we have some studio time at a, at a place nearby. You want to come and watch me and my group record some, some demos at the studio? And it was a 16-track studio called Ripcord Studios in Vancouver, Washington. And I went over there, and um, the band was having a little trouble getting things together. So I sort of stepped in and helped, you know, come up with some ideas of how to organize and organize the music and tell people what to do a little bit. And after they finished, the engineer came up to me and, and told me that he thought that it seemed like I knew what I was doing. And he was trying to learn about engineering. And he was wondering if I wanted to get into the studio and so I could practice making demos and he could practice engineering. The guy's name was Dave Dixon. And, um, and that was sort of my big break in a way, because after that, that's how I was able to make the demos that got me my little deal on inner city records and uh, eventually, you know, sort of allowed me to continue on as a professional musician and do a lot more. So I guess the, the bottom line to all that is when you get those lucky breaks like that, you have to be ready to take advantage of the situation you have had to somehow, you know, just have the, the talent or the just the, the ability to make the most out of it. So I guess that's basically it is is uh, good business advice is when when you are lucky and thing and you get a luck something that could, can be a lucky break, just be ready to take advantage of it, and hopefully you've done your homework to uh, be able to do that. You can find out more about Jeff at lorber.com. That's lorber, L-O-R-B-E-R.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Hey.